I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 17, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 17, verse 1. We'll read just verses 1 through 10 this morning. We looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. And we want to continue into this chapter with verses 5 through 10. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Then He said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. (coughs) Excuse me. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots. And be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. All right. Luke chapter 17. We uh, last week looked at a very sobering account. And that's probably a light way of saying it. An account that essentially puts a lot of weight on the Christian to be Christ-like. Not just for our own benefit, but particularly in consideration of others around us. And I fear that for many Christians, we make a lot of their decisions on personal basis instead of on others. And Christ here warns of that. That when we act in self-interest, that we are going to do injury in the form of offenses to those around us. Remember, we talked about offenses, that this is not about hurt feelings. That is far from what Christ is talking about. He's talking about that which would interrupt one's faith or the journey one is taking toward being a believer. This is the offenses he's talking about and instructing us on. There's two areas particularly wants us to be careful in this area. One is with the little ones. That there should be nothing in our attitudes, in our actions, in our behaviors, which are actions, in our speech that should taint them from wanting 
and fulfilling a desire to walk with God. That that is the sacred trust when God gives a child to anyone. Whether that be within a family context of parents or whether it be within a church context, our responsibility is to guard their faith. They learn faith by trusting adults. And when adults behave and speak and, and think and show themselves to be untrustworthy, you are damaging the capacity of these young people to trust. And God says it would be better off if you were dead than do that to your children. To put anything between them and trusting in God. And I shared probably some things that disturbed a few of you last week. That the greatest hazards to our children growing up to love God are not out there, but in here. They are not at school, they are at home are the greatest hazards to children following after God. When they are confronted with one parent on Sunday and a different parent on Monday, they figure it out pretty quick. Christianity doesn't really mean what they say it means. And it's not for me. And so that kind of hypocrisy cannot be seen, cannot be there, cannot be heard because it shouldn't be in our midst at all. So we are called upon to not offend these little ones. That is, not to hurt their feelings. That's not what he's saying. But rather, to prevent them from coming to faith and from walking in faith and righteousness. When we lead children into sin, it would be better off, Christ says, that we'd be dead and dead by horrible ways, ways of judgment. This is a serious weight that Christ just put on all of us, every adult person in this room, to recognize that it's not about me. It's about others. And therefore, I need to behave myself. I need to function with their eyes in my head, with their ears in my, upon my mind, with their actions in my thinking. The second area that he warned us about offending is by holding bitter grudges. But this is another level of offense that must be eradicated from our midst. That forgiveness is the premise of our relationship with God should need to be unspoken. We come to God with nothing but sin. We receive from God everything, including forgiveness. We did not deserve it, earn it. There's nothing in what we do in the process of, of placing our faith in Christ and repenting. We use those terms in, in active verbs and rightly so. But those are gifts of God Himself, that He puts that capacity for faith within all of us. He puts that capacity for uh, decision-making within all of us, called a will. And then He calls upon us to 
place it in Him, in His work. And so we recognize that on a daily basis, if I were really honest, I need to come to God and ask for forgiveness. And so we are called upon with that kind of understanding of ourselves to take heed that when we become the one sinned against, that we be more like Christ. We expect Him to be understanding. We expect Him to be loving. We expect Him to receive us. He's promised to do so. That if we confess our sins, He will be faithful and He will be just to forgive us. And let there be no misunderstanding here. Every sin is against Him. We are sinning against our Savior. And He says He is faithful and just in forgiving. Christians must exemplify this kind of of love that is faithful and just. It is unjust to hold a grudge against someone who has repented of a sin. Unjust. It is unfaithful of you to do that. You say, well, he's going to do it over and over again. Yep. But as long as he is repentant, and this is, we don't undervalue that word, just saying if you, just saying, I'm sorry. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about coming to you with genuine sorrow over what you have done. You forgive that one, even as Christ has forgiven us. We looked at these two, and we talked about the necessity of severity in the first case, and the necessity of tenderness in the second. That in the first case, we are severe when it comes to our sin against others. In the second case, we are tender when it comes to others' sin against us. But we find that in reality, our attitude is reversed, isn't it? We are always tender when it comes to our own sin against people. We expect understanding, forgiveness, and love. But we're always severe to those who sin against us. I'll get them. I'll never forgive them. God calls us to the reverse. So you see, Christ-likeness is radical. This kind of radicality is not easily lived. Now, yesterday, or last yesterday, I wish it was last yesterday, last week, if we could meet every day, it would really make my job a lot easier if we just do that. Um, last week we talked about this, and I don't want you to think, I, I think I communicate very effectively, that it was not easy thing we're asking you to do. We're asking you to go to counter to really the natural man. And the disciples, upon hearing the, this description, have an interesting response. And it needs to be our response when we consider what God has just called us to do. And their statement is, in verse 5, where we pick up this morning, <laughs> Lord, increase our faith. You want us to do what? Oh, we're not up to it. And oh, we would come to God with enough humility to recognize what He is asking of us we are not capable of in the strength of your will in the nature of your humanity. So we must join the apostles, and let's do that right now in prayer with this request, increase our faith. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather your name. We thank you for this time in your word. 
And Lord, we have to ask the same thing. For what your word declares, we see as near impossible. Yet you demand it of us, but not without empowering us to do it. So Lord, help us to believe this must be done. And that it is not really even a marvelous thing should we do it. Humble us today, Lord. We might seek your face. We might turn from the natural to the supernatural. We can't do it of our own intellect, of our own will. We ask your spirit to take control now. You might guard this time from error, from the opinions of men, from the philosophies of this world, that your truth might be communicated effectively. It might be received and brought into our very beings. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was the intro. Now we get to get into our text today. Increase our faith. Sounds like a pretty mundane request that we can always make at any time in our Christian existence, right? Increase my faith. Um, This faith is good. More faith is better. Um, Christ isn't going to really tell them they need more. In their perception of what he has just required of them, their response is, we we need a lot more faith if, if we're expected to do that. Christ doesn't say, I'll help you increase your faith. His response is very telling. It tells us that maybe it isn't more faith that we need, but better faith that we need. Let me explain that a little bit. All men, Bible says, has a capacity of faith. We all believe in something. Some people believe in themselves. They believe in this world. They believe, uh, some people claim to believe in nothing. I don't know how that works, but... Um, kind of foolish. Um, so, but when, when you sit down with people and you want to engage in a serious conversation, you'll figure out their belief system. They believe in something. They believe in uh, the rule of law. They believe in politics. They believe in the economy. I don't know how, but they, I'm sure there's someone out there that's foolish enough to do that. They believe in education. They believe in whatever. So the capacity to believe is inherent in all men. And Christ sure doesn't really address the idea of increasing that capacity. In fact, he says kind of the reverse. That it's not more faith you need, it's faith, it's what you have your faith in that it's at issue here. It's the quality of that faith, and the quality of faith is improved by the object of that faith's improvement. That is, if I am trusting in something temporal, something if I'm trusting in a rock that I painted and carved and then sat on a shelf, and that's where I trust, and I call that my God, my faith is pathetic. It has no quality to it, because the object of it is something I made with my own hands. And it doesn't speak, it doesn't move. And even if that object, if I put together a few precious metals and some plastics and some other things, and I arrange them in a very intricate design, and they end up displaying things on a 
screen and actually talk to me. And I place my faith in that piece of equipment called a television. And I believe in that. I believe in that. The quality of my faith is pathetic because the object of the faith is still an inanimate object. Christ here is not calling us to more and more, we need more faith. His statement is quite the reverse. You just need a little. You just need a little. You have enough. You have, every one of us, the capacity within us to believe sufficient to what God calls us to do in living. This idea that, oh, I just don't have enough faith to do that, Pastor. That's just too scary. It's not that you don't have enough faith. It's that you have faith in the wrong things. Your faith is misplaced. And therefore, it lacks of inequality and you will not be able to accomplish what God calls you to do. This is the core of a disobedient Christian life. And the disciples claim here that they don't have enough faith to do what Christ has just described in these two things of removing offenses from those around us and living a life that calls others to godly living that, that we uh, are not don't have the capacity that there's just not enough faith in me to forgive people over and over again um, seven times a day. Um, I just don't have it in me. Christ says baloney. Well, he doesn't say that, actually. I don't think they had baloney back then. But essentially, he's saying, nonsense! Don't tell me you don't have enough faith. The quality of your faith is not in its quantity, but in its object. And so Christ comes to them with this statement. If only you had the faith as a mustard seed, a proverbial, small, dinky, little, itty-bitty seed, one of the very smallest, and uh, some take contention because Christ said it was the smallest, and we know today that there are smaller seeds, um, so people qualify that as the smallest garden seed. But in the day, it was a proverb that anything that was mustard seed size was tiny. That's how much faith you need. Now, tell me, you don't have that much? You had more than that when you got in your car and drove here. That you believed everyone at a traffic light was going to do what the law says they were going to do. You had that much faith in humans obeying traffic lights. We're not talking about quantity here. We're talking about the object. Quality of your faith is, is defined by what it is placed in. If you have faith, and the implication is rightly placed, as a mustard seed, that's much quantity. But if you have a quality of faith, you can say this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You can often think of trees obeying us. I'm going to go talk to these ones out here this afternoon. Um, I think it's going to help. I'm going to start talking to them every week. I don't know. My neighbors are going to think I'm insane, but we're just going to try I don't want them to leave. I want them to grow. The mulberry tree, a tree with deep and extensive root structure. So when he says a mulberry tree is going to be uprooted at your command, um, this is a pretty phenomenal event we're talking about. I mean, we're not talking, you know, I had a tree out here. I have had several trees here we planted and just blew over in a storm because um, their root structure never got developed sufficiently enough um, 
Not so the mulberry tree. Those roots are deep, deep. In fact, the rabbis in, in, in Israel used to say that a mulberry tree roots will last 600 years. I don't know how they knew that. None of them lived that long. But that's what they said. A mulberry tree's roots would last 600 years. They were considered one of the most enduring root structures of the plant kingdom. Just like the mustard seed was considered the smallest, mulberry tree considered of that nature most, one of the most enduring. And so Christ says, oh, if you have this little bit, you can deal with this impossible thing. With this tiny quantity, you can do this tremendous act. You see, the, the issue was never quantity of faith. The statement by the disciples is, is flatly rejected by Christ. It is not increased faith you need. It is not that you have less than a mustard seed's worth. It's that you have sufficient faith, place it in a quality object, and you will see its power. You put it in things that will disappoint you over and over again. We talk about our faith being shattered by individuals or by events or, or whatever that we place our trust in and then they let us down. Well, the problem wasn't your faith. The problem was the object of it. My expectation of others, sin-stained human creatures, is that they will regularly let me down. doesn't mean I'm not going to minister to them or love them, care for them. It's just, it's the expectation. I understand human nature. And, and I think it's kind of silly when we think that no one's going to let me down in life. Uh, the only one who can have, <laughs> that you should place that kind of faith in is Jesus Christ. He's the only object of faith that will never disappoint. And so we have the tiniest quantity accomplishing one of the most magnificent acts. He says, that's all you need. You need to put it in the right place. You have enough. Now he's going to address an underlying attitude behind the request. The request is increase our faith. And the idea is that there's something that needs to be built up bigger and bigger and bigger in us to do the work of God. God asks us to do these incredible things, to be a consistent testimony to the children around me, to forgive people who have sinned against me, to be severe upon myself and tender towards others. It runs in the very face of human thinking. Increase my faith because there's something that has to be generated inside of me to accomplish that near impossible thing of being less human and more like God. Here's the underlyingness. Is that somehow, if we could acquire to this place that God will just be so, so happy to have us on his side. Right? See, underlying this is the idea that, 
there's some accomplishment here for me if I were to do what Christ has just described for us. Now, let's drive this home with Christ's little parable. You have a servant. We're not used to this. Um, even employers don't act like this uh, in our society. So we're kind of uh, uh, separate from this culturally. But we understand if you have a slave, you are the master and, and you have all authority over this individual. And of course, as with the parables, we have a presentation of God and a presentation of either the world or believers uh, or something of the kingdom of heaven. So here, the master is the representation of, of God, of the Father. So he's there, and he's the master. He's got a slave out working in the fields. Now, master's in there. He's doing whatever the master's got business doing, and the slave doesn't really know what the master's doing in the house, right? Um, doesn't Probably doesn't. You know, some of the, many of the slaves were uh, used in as instructors and as doctors and things like that in that society. Um, but there was also some that didn't know how to read and things along that line. And so they weren't aware of the master's business so much as what their job was. And they come in, the master's been doing his work. The slave's been doing his work out in the field. The slave comes in. Does the master jump up and say, oh, I'm so glad you got here. I'm, oh, are you, was that a hard day out in the field? Well, sit down. Why don't you get, let me get you something to drink. Are you hungry? Let me feed you. Of course not. He's the master. The slave comes in from working out in the field, and the master says, get me something to eat and drink. Take off my boots and rub my little toes. And then when you're all done serving me, you can eat and drink and care for yourself. Why does he have that expectation? Because he's the master, and the other one's a slave. And the expectation is, I'm not going to applaud you for doing your job. You get, you're the ma- you're the slave. I'm not going to thank you. I'm not going. I'm not going to cater to you. I'm not going to come over to you and and say, oh, you poor thing out there. Um, and this is even a kind, benevolent master. Still has an expectation. You're going to do your work. And yes, it's sometimes grueling, and and it, it might from your personal selfish perspective, seem unfair. But the fact is, is that that's the role that you have and you're not the master for whatever reason. Sometimes that was because of birth. Sometimes it was because of being conquered by another country. Uh, sometimes it was by uh, indebting yourself. A lot of the slaves in Rome were there by choice. They spent more than they made they used credit cards and mortgages. Well, they didn't back then, but it was the same concept. And the Bible says that the debtor is slave to the lender. They knew who their masters was. And back then, you could become the slave of your lender to pay off your debt. So many of them did it on purpose. They, it was their own living that got them into slavery. Good lesson for us. That's, a little, that's extra, free. You're the slave. It's the role you're in. You can complain about what got you there, but it's not going to change the fact that you're there. And the master is the master. It is who he is. There's no unjustness in what his expectations are. He's, he, you're his property, and I know that really bothers us. We're his property. 
He can do with us as please. He could sell us. He could remove us. He could, but he's been feeding us, clothing us, housing us, caring for us as a master does a slave. What's at the end of the day? What is the slave's expectation? That the master's going to come over and say, I just want to tell you, you're doing really good work. And I, I hope you keep it up. Are, are you going to, I hope you get out there in that field and really stick to it. You can do it. I'm sure you can. No. Master doesn't go visit the slave quarters in the evening and try to give him pep talks. Doesn't do it. He expects the slave to get up the next day or endure a beating. Think about it. We've got to really adjust ourselves culturally a little, little bit. A lot of people try to take whatever Scripture says about slaves and masters and put it into the workforce, but I don't think you can really do that. We need to take our thinking and take it back into those days. So Christ says, what does this parable have to do with us? When you have done everything God has commanded you, what do you say to God? Now remember what he has just commanded you. Don't you dare put a roadblock between a child and faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you dare. Better off if you are dead than you lead children away from God by your, whether purposefully or inadvertently, by your own selfish behavior and sin. Don't you dare hold bitter grudges against sorrowful, repentant sinners. Don't you dare. Those are the two commands. That's God's demand of us. He says, when you have done all of that. <laughs> he doesn't say, if you did all that. Does he, Does he say that? Um, so likewise, verse 10 is where I'm at. I'm all the way to verse 10. I'm really moving along here. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things, it's a when, not if you did all those things. The expectation of the master is, I gave you a command. You're going to fulfill the command. I'm the master. You're the servant. You go do it. I will not. There's no excusing. There is no complaining. There is no uh, bartering here. There's no collective agreement here. Uh, it's, I'm the master. You're the slave. Go do it and get it done. I expect it done and done well. Christ says, this command I just gave you, these two commands, these two areas that I've just commanded you when you do them <laughs> not if when and don't complain you don't have enough faith to do these things when, when, when. you need this much and you can do more you need just you have enough when you've done it here's what your attitude should be and it should be reflected in this Statement. Remember, you've done all those things which you're commanded. This is your attitude. We are unprofitable servants. We've only done what is our duty to do. Now, the word unprofitable doesn't mean... This person is not um, self-denigrating. That's not what's going on. By saying, we're unprofitable servants. You know, we're not going to well, I'm just a humble person and I'm nobody. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in the doing of, the, of your commands, fundamentally, I haven't brought you a profit. That is, I have not benefited you. 
I've not added anything to your estate by me doing my job. That's that concept of unprofitability. It's not that I'm worthless. It's the idea that I haven't added to your kingdom just by doing these minimum things. And we begin to look at this and say, I am an unprofitable servant. In in the mundane activity that I'm engaged in, I'm not really adding to you. And no matter how much we do as a Christian, we are not adding to God. He is not lacking of anything because you didn't do your work. He is not not waiting expectantly. He's not utterly dependent upon you fulfilling this. And so when we obey God, it is not because we are adding something to His kingdom. It is because we have been added to His kingdom. We have a debt we're paying off. And so it's not that we are, that we are uh, enriching God, for we are not. God is not lucky to have you. It's quite the reverse. You are blessed to have Him. You really are. Do you believe it? I don't know how you can not be a thankful person as a Christian. It's an oxymoron, an unthankful Christian. Horrible. God is not blessed to have you. You are blessed to have Him. And so when we've done everything He tells us to do, and it takes this much faith to do that, people. So don't sit there and say, I can't do it. I don't have enough faith. I don't know enough. I tried, I tried, I tried. I've heard it all. God's heard it even more. And His conclusion is, when you've done it all, make sure you have this attitude. You've brought nothing to the kingdom. Because the faith I gave you, I placed it in all men. The power I gave you, the Holy Spirit. The deliverance I gave you. I gave, I gave. You are the recipient. You're not adding to the kingdom of heaven. You are, we're going to get to heaven, and we, we, we really, and I've, I've harped on this a little bit of late. It's kind of my soapbox right now. Um, we really have this view that we're going to get there and God's going to be so lucky to give us crowns. What? God's going to be lucky because so I'm there and I work so hard that He's going to give me crowns. Did we forget who's the recipient and who's the giver? Do we forget that He's the supplier and we are the acquirers? Are we missing that somehow? We're unprofitable servants. Oh, that we would have that attitude to recognize that once I've done everything God called me to do, I haven't scratched the surface because I haven't really repaid anything. I still have a great spiritual debt that I owe that, that, that He's paid for me. And so I'm not added to His kingdom. I've taken from His kingdom. It makes me unprofitable. So we're not here trying to denigrate ourselves by saying, I'm a bad person. But rather, it is understanding that at the very height of the very best that I can do for God is not adding to heaven. 
the sum equation, when you have this positive and this negative, and the negative is bigger than the positive, the sum of the equation is a negative. If we can use those terms, those mathematical t concepts. Here's what I'm doing for God. Here's what I've done against God. Um, I bring a negative to the kingdom of heaven no matter how much I've done for God. Other side, you want to look at it the other way? If all the positive is what God's done, all the negative is what I've done, I always end up, God's done more. Always. That's what is, what is portrayed when Christ says, we, our attitude towards God is, I am an unprofitable servant. I am, I, I, I'm not bringing something into this kingdom, but rather I am, I am getting from this kingdom something far more than what I'm bringing to it. And so I'm an unprofitable servant. And let me not overlook that word servant. I remember uh, in one in a church a while back in a Sunday school lesson, uh, they were trying to contend that, no, we're servants, we're not slaves. Um, there's no such distinction in Scripture between servants and slaves. i got to tell you that. Um, they're the same. And so when we say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, and I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, you're saying essentially the same thing. I say, well, slaves against his will and servants. When you accept Christ, you are surrendering your will to God. That's what it is, essentially. You're surrendering your will. And whether that happened when you surrendered on the battlefield or surrendered because of the debt you've incurred or for whatever reason, um, ultimately, it's a surrender of will. Now, my master's will has become mine. What my master wants is what I want. And so we read that word servant and we kind of skip over because we're kind of um, focusing on the unprofitable part. But we are servants. Christians are slaves of Jesus Christ. He bought us with a very precious price that we cannot ever repay. We are His. So we are called to obey, to make His will our will. Well, with that underlying self-concept, when this self-concept, I am bringing nothing, in the balance of the equation, I am a negative to the kingdom of heaven. I have drawn much more than I could ever give. And that's if I have obeyed everything Christ commanded. Any of you done that yet? You haven't gotten there yet? Well, I'm so glad. Because I haven't either. I'd, hate, I'd be real nervous being in the presence of someone who had done that. But Christ expects us there. Even if I've done that, I've, I've kept every commandment, and I'm consistently doing that every day, and I'm just, I'm just obeying God, I'm living, walking in the Spirit, I'm doing all these things. Even if I do all things that Christ has commanded, I'm still a negative. On the ledger balance of life, I'm still a negative. I've withdrawn from the kingdom more than I could ever bring. With that underlying understanding, I'm a slave, God's will is my will. Um, I've withdrawn a huge amount out of the kingdom of heaven to cover my sin. Now, I have an opportunity to repay a little bit, but it's not going to net God a profit. We come with that 
to this conclusion. We have done what was our duty to do. The concept here is I've just done the minimum. Um, to follow our financial terminology that we've been tracking, I've just been paying interest and touched the principal. I have this enormous debt, and all I'm doing by obeying everything God commands me, all I'm doing is paying the interest, not touching the principal. I still owe the same amount as I owed at the beginning because... All I've done is pay interest. And so I've only done what was my minimal duty. I I don't expect the master to um, reward me for doing my daily chores. And among the daily chores for the Christian is to be sure that you are not standing between someone and their walk with God, particularly children. And among the daily chores of the Christian is to have an attitude and spirit of forgiveness every day. And among the daily chores of Christian is to have a quality of faith, not because of something inside of us, but because we have a better object. Oh, that the object of our faith this week would be consistently God on high. And not the things of this world. Powerful passage. It's interesting how many commentators say, well, these are just a bunch of unrelated statements that Luke kind of throws together. And yes, it's true that Matthew and Mark find them in other contexts, but Luke here is very purposeful in putting this all together very neatly tied, as he consistently does. Um, And I can't understand someone that says verse 10 has nothing to do with verse 1, 2, 3, or 4. But it's certain that the duty he's talking about is this incredible statement of verses 1 through 4, what it means to live out the Christian life. And if your reaction last week's sermon was, oh, I I need more faith to do that, um, this is your rebuke. (laughs) No, you don't. If you feel that your, your faith is not up to the task, it's because you're not trusting in God. The object of your faith is misplaced, not the quantity of your faith. And the idea behind that is that somehow you're going to do this and that God's going to be just in tears over your level of obedience and it's not going to happen. This is the minimum God expects out of you as his servants. He expects it to get done, and he gets, expects it to get done every day without fail. And he's not going to pat you on the back. 
He's not going to give you a gold star. He's not going to do any of that. There's not going to be a banquet thrown in your honor. The wedding supper of the Lamb is not the wedding supper of the bride. If you think the wedding supper is about you guys, it's not. It's about Him. That banquet that we're looking forward to is about Him. You see? We wait around for people to think, and I got to tell you, I get weary of, and I get weary of it not just in others, but in myself as well, of this insatiable need to be thanked for fundamental things. That are just our responsibility to do. And yet, if nobody appreciates me, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Is largely the attitude of too many Christians. Instead of this attitude, I'm a servant of the King. His will is my will. And I'm not adding anything to His kingdom. I'm doing the minimum. And that's when I've obeyed everything God says. You have enough faith to do that. The question is, will you put it where it belongs to do it? Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this uh, rebuke and this instruction. It's been a difficult and uh, sobering two weeks. We know your expectations. We know that you have provided all the tools to do what you've commanded us to do. It now rests upon our shoulders. Obey. Lord, give us such a humbleness of the small part we play in your work that these words might regularly be heard from our lips, echoing in our thoughts. We are unprofitable servants. We've only done what was our duty. Jesus' name. Amen.